0: Hey, it's Ken Finnan at Capital Advantage Tutoring. It's my job to get you past the Series 7 top-off exam. So for the Series 7, we know you have to read. You all have done the SIE, hopefully you've done the SIE already, and you passed that and you find out you liked it, you passed it, you learned something. So now going forward, we have to take that knowledge and build on it. So I'm going to do Chapter 1, and then a couple chapters, and then from like 13 on, I'll do them all. But the middle chapters are all overlap from the SAE. So just maybe watch those videos, read that book again. Totally cool. If you like this, the style of the mod I'm doing, please like and subscribe. But if you like the, the, the order that it's going in, go down here and buy the STC book. I have the link. You get a discount, it's pretty awesome. I love it. So let's get going. So for the Series 7 exam and the 6 exam and all these exams, you have to open accounts. That's the goal is to get the customers. So the question comes down to what do you need from your customer? So you have to look at a lot of things and kind of figure out who they are. You're really trying to get as much information as you can out of them so you can make good decisions. This isn't just being nosy. It's what you're doing. So you have to look at some financial considerations, what they do. Basically, depending on what their occupation is, you can um, figure out what they can understand like nothing wrong with it but if they're a plumber or electrician they might not be as knowledgeable about the materials they may make just as much money and be as smart but they may not be knowledgeable they're not exposed to it or if they're like a doctor and they deal with stuff or a lawyer they will know stuff that maybe a plumber wouldn't but then a plumber would know stuff that a lawyer wouldn't so you have to know what they're doing also if you find out they work for a FINRA firm there's other that kind of triggers obligations like you have to get make sure you get permission from the employer and you have to send the confirms and statements to the or firm so if they work for a broker dealer they have some rules okay you want to know their income remember you're building up a profile for the series seven you really need to know all this stuff so you want to know what their income is you want to know whether how they get their money whether it's wages alimony investment income basically getting money from retirement accounts all that stuff you want to know that and normally, the more, it's not a rule, and normally, the more income they make, the more risk they can take. And if they don't make a lot of money, they'll take less risk. Nothing wrong with it, but you have to know all this. So if they make a lot of money, they can usually take on more risk, but it doesn't mean they absolutely, well, it's just, that's your thought process. And the lower income they have, the less risk they have. Again, just like the other stuff. Like older is less risk, younger is more risk, but they're not definitive, they're just likely, okay. Okay, so the other thing you're going to have to do is kind of figure out their cash flow. So you want to find out what their income is. So, so not just the amount, but like how much money is coming in and out. So you want to come up with like a cash flow statement where you're going to say money goes in, money goes out. So this way be can figure out how much discretionary or net income they have. So basically you're going to take all their income and take all the taxes and every all oh, the bills out and whatever's left over. So if they make 100 and then they have 90 in bills, they have 10 grand in discretionary income, stuff like that. That's what we can invest. That's what they mean by discretionary income. So let's talk about different types of income. So there's earned or ordinary income. That's like basically salaries, commissions, wages, royalties, stuff like that. Stuff that you earn from working. And this is going to go into your tax bracket. So understand something. So when you talk about somebody's tax bracket, usually they're talking about the marginal, which is the top tax bracket. But that's not that's not what they're actually paying. That's the money they're paying on the last money in. And I'll do a thing in a second on that. Now, so there's marginal and effective. Effective is kind of what they average to pay. Marginal is what they pay on their last dollar. So let's see what we can do. Okay, guys, so let's do this. Um, I set this up as ballpark brackets are not exact, but they're ballparks. Just so we can understand marginal versus effective. So marginal rate, we're going to say this person makes 100 grand a year. So they're right in this bracket. That means their marginal rate is 22%. So anything they earn through like dividends or um, income or bonds or like that will be taxed at 22%, their marginal rate, because that's money that's on top of the 100 grand that they have. But that's not what they're paying on everything. Because the first 20 grand they make, they only get paid tax 10% on. The next 60 they make, they get taxed 12% on. And then the next from eighty to one hundred, they're taxed at twenty two percent. So the marginal is only on your top, that the last money you're making, the top, everything above that bracket. So if you're making seventy five grand a year and they offer to give you an, a seven thousand dollar raise, don't turn it down because it's not like you're getting more money taxed on everything. You're just taxed on what's above that bracket. So really, if you're making one hundred grand a year, you're actually paying like three different brackets. On the first twenty you make, it's ten percent. On the next sixty, it's twelve. And then on the next 20, in this case, it's only, it's 22, 22%. Your paycheck, they do the tax bracket withholding based on you working a full year, based on your you're making 100 grand a year. They're going to take the money out all year based on you making 100 grand. So they're going to tax you accordingly. But they do the math, what they call your effective rate. So the effective rate is the average or the blend of the 10% on this, the 12% on that 60, and the 22% on this. Okay, so I just did this real quick. I was coughing like crazy, so I didn't want you guys to suffer through that. Um, The first 20 grand, I'm going to pay 2 grand in taxes. Then this 60, I'll pay 7,200. And then I'll pay 4,400 on this. That totals up 13.6. So my marginal rate is 22, but my actual rate out of the 100 grand I'm making is only 13.6. So you never use that for anything, just to understand. So 13.6% is my effective rate. But whenever you're calculating what they pay taxes on with any investment you're doing, you figure it's on top of their salary. So it's gonna be their marginal, which is gonna be the 22% margin. So that's marginal versus effective. I hope that helps. Then we also have passive income. Passive income is like something from direct investment into real estate or like limited partnerships, DPPs and stuff like that. That's passive. Now, passive losses are if you lose money through those things, through real estate or write offs through, through limited partnerships, that money, you know how if you know you lose money, if you lose money trading, capital losses, you can use all of it against capital gains, and three grand of it against your ordinary income. Well, in this case, you can only use the passive losses against passive gains. So if you make five grand in in real estate, and then you lose ten grand in real estate, you have a five thousand dollar net loss. You can't use that unless it's for other passive income. So the next year, if you have passive income, you can use it for that. So passive losses only offset passive gains. So we have investment income. Investment income is your stuff you get from your investments, like dividends, right? So if you get a cash dividend, you're going to pay taxes on that. Usually it's, it comes to you either quarterly or semi-annual. We're going to pay taxes on it when you get it. Stock dividends, you're going to get more shares. So you're, it's not really a taxable thing, but it is, I guess, considered income if you want to really stretch it. I don't consider it income. It's just, it's going to adjust your cost basis. Interest income, you buy a bond, a corporate bond. You're going to pay taxes on the federal, state, and local level. If you buy a treasury, if you get treasury income, you're going to just pay federal tax, not state or local. If you buy a muni, you're going to pay state and local, maybe, not federal. And you might only, you might not even pay state and local if you buy it in your own state. Then we have deferred income. That's like stuff where you're putting money in like a KEO or an IRA or 401k. You're paying taxes on it later. So that income you're not getting now, You bring it out. Now, remember, anytime you see deferred income, it's always taxed at ordinary income. It is never capital gains. When you get paid out from an IRA, 401k, annuity, any of that stuff, anything that's deferred is never going to be capital gains. It's always, always, always going to be ordinary income, which is now just to understand, if you watch my other video, you should be fine. I'll put the taxes one here, Um, here, or here, wherever the hell it goes. Um, Capital gains is a buy and a sell. And it's usually taxed on every level. Interest income is usually, or those non, say non-long-term gains and any kind of interest or dividend income is going to be taxed to your ordinary income rate, which is what we just did on the little square, the uh, marginal and the effective rate. Now, when we talk about taxes, there's either progressive or regressive. Progressive is like the more you make, the more they take. So which is what I just showed you before. Income taxes are progressive, that the more you make, the more they take from you. If you make fifty grand, you pay twelve percent. If you pay eighty grand, you pay twenty-two. If you pay more if you get more than that. You're paying thirty or forty. So that's um, progressive. Estate taxes, income taxes, dividends, all that stuff. Now, regressive is like more like you pay a sales sales tax, right? So sales tax is the same tax. It's a tax on goods. So whether you're rich or poor, you're still paying the same amount. So it actually hurts the poor people more. So if you so if I went out to dinner with somebody who's really rich, and we both, bought, you know, bought, spend a thousand dollars, and we pay a hundred dollars in taxes, just say, okay, uh, sales tax. If we decide to split it, it hurts me more than the rich guy because it's a bigger percentage of my income than it is of his or hers. So, regress sales tax is absolutely regressive because the more you make, you're still paying the same amount of money, but it's hurting you less. Now, what's really cool is that if you own a dividend for a certain amount of time, which is 60 days before and after the X date, it's considered qualified. If it's qualified, remember normal dividends are taxed at ordinary income rate, which is at 22, 25, 39%. But if you hold the stock for 60 days before and after the X date, it's considered qualified and they reduce the taxes to um, your capital gains rate, which is 15 or 20%, which is much better, the long-term capital gains rate. So again, qualified dividends are great. So if you have a choice, a lot of times, people will choose the cash, the dividend over interest. It's not as safe. You get me a little bit more. We're also paying less taxes if you hold it for the long term. Now, mutual fund and REIT dividends are not eligible for this. The reason they do this qualified dividend thing is because think about it. If you buy a stock from a company and they pay, and they're, they're going to pay taxes on the money they earn, then they send it to you and then you pay taxes. So it's double taxed. That's why they're giving you a break, because they've already taxed it. Mutual funds and REITs, they pass through 90% of their income, so that money's never been taxed, so they're not giving you a break. So the IRS is not really giving you so much a break, other than that we're going, we already taxed the money once, so we'll give you a lower rate because we're taxing it a second time. And mutual funds and REITs, it's a one-time tax, so they're not giving you a break. Okay, so AMT, alternative minimum tax, was created as a way to have wealthier rich people pay their fair share, whatever the hell that means, but whatever. So there are certain types of income that if you normally would get a tax break on it, you won't. So like certain revenue bonds, like if they're industrial development bonds, or there's too much corporate involvement or whatever, like the line between public and private is blurred. Sometimes that income will be subject to federal income tax because they're they're taking away your deductions. On the limited partnership side, there are some limited partnership write ups that are called tax preference items, which they will not allow you to deduct off your income. So you have to pay taxes on it. I want you to think of it this way if I make 100 grand a year and I get 50 grand a year in revenue bond interest, or say muni bond interest, okay? And that's not, it's not subject to AMT. I make 150 when I do my tax return, I deduct the 50 grand and only pay taxes on 100 because geo bonds are not taxable. But say I have a revenue bond that is subject to AMT. Say They like say some of it is. So I make 100 grand a year. I get 50 grand a year in revenue interest. Now that interest, say I'm, say I'm only allowed to deduct half of it. I deduct 25,000 of that interest, and I pay taxes on the other 25. So what AMT is doing is the more you make, the more they're taking away from your deductions. So you can't just hide your money in all these, like tax, you know, t- these um, tax preference items that would um, hide your taxes. I I know it sounded weird when I just did that. So if you see like um, accelerated or excessive depreciation or accelerated uh, depreciation or excessive deductions, that would normally trigger AMT. Again, mostly you just have to know that AMT is never for GOs. It is for some limited partners who might be subject to it and certain revenue bonds might be subject to it also. It is there to uh, make sure that the fair fair to make sure that the rich pay their fair share of taxes. Okay. So estate taxes. Okay. Estate and gift taxes. So here's what happens. I can give anyone up to 15 grand a year. I can give as many people as I want up to 15 grand a year. I can do it to anyone. Okay. As many, as many people as I want. If I was, you know, if I know that, you know, I just need to dump money, I can write a check to every one of the viewers on here for 15 grand every year, or you can do it to me. Okay. Okay. So you can write a $15,000 check every year without the person receiving it having to pay taxes. Now, if you're married, you can double it to make it 30. That kind of makes sense. You can also prepay five years worth. So you can actually do, instead of me giving you 15 dollars a year, I can give you $75,000 up front. But then I can't give you any more money without violating the rules in a way, without having to pay taxes on it for five years. So a couple can do up to, you know, to $150,000 a year. Did I do the math right? Yeah, 150 grand a year. So you can say I have a bunch of grandkids. I can give them each 15 grand. Boom, boom, boom. I love it. And I don't have to pay taxes on it. Oh, they don't have to pay taxes on it. Now, my wife, going back and forth, there's a thing called a marital deduction. I can give my wife and my wife can give me an unlimited amount of money and there's no problem. Okay? There is unlimited amount of money I can give back and forth because we're married. It's kind of considered the same person. So another add-on to this, you state, we understand, that say you wanna give somebody more than 15 grand, there's a lifetime exclusion, and don't worry about the number ever, it's just, there's a total amount of money that you can give away to somebody at any point of your entire life without having it be taxed. So if you give more than the 50 grand, you can just put it to that, but you have to remember to deduct it when you die. Well, you'll be dead, so you don't have to do shit. It's your executor's problem. But understand, so that's the thing, is that I can give 15 grand a year, without them paying taxes. If I give more than that, they pay taxes on the on the above part. Now, where this comes into play sometimes is on the 529. Because if they say, what's the max contribution on a 529? Well, really there is no max. Other than each, there's no federal limit, okay? You can give as much as you want, as long as the state allows it. Like New York state allows like 300 grand or something like that. New Jersey is maybe 280. They have state rules, but no federal rules on it. But you can give anything up to the 280. It's just anything over 15 grand, is taxable to you, the donor. Capital gains and losses. Capital gains are when you buy and sell. So this is what I tell everyone. Capital gains are when you buy and sell. There are three things that are capital gains. a so buy and a sell, option expiration, and mutual fund distribution of capital gains. Okay, now, the way it's taxed, it's either taxed long-term or short-term. If it's long-term, it's a lower tax bracket of like 15 or 20%, depending how much money you make. If it's short term, which is one year or less, not under a year, one year or less is short term, which means that you have to pay your ordinary income, which goes back to that whole marginal rate shit that I did. Now, capital, short term capital gains also is if you sell short. So always remember, short sales are always short term. So if you sell short something and then buy it back for a profit, it is always a short term gain, even if it took you three years to buy it back. Short sales are always short term. Which means you're always at the higher that your ordinary income bracket, that whole marginal crap. If it's a long term gain, which just means held of asset over a year, then you get a lower tax, you have a lower tax bracket. I'm gonna add one little bonus into this. If you buy stock and buy a put the same day, you're good to go. If you buy stock and buy a put after you buy the stock, when, no matter when you do all the way up to a year. So once you get long term status, when I'm about to say doesn't matter. But if 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 you don't buy it on the same day and you haven't gotten long-term status holding period on the stock yet, if you buy a put six months after you buy the stock, your holding period goes back to zero and it doesn't start counting again until you get rid of the put. So if you, if you buy stock July 1st and then buy stock July first, and then on June 30th, which are a day away or two days away from getting long-term status, you buy a put, all that 364 days you held it is wiped out to zero. And then when you sell the put, then it goes to number one. That's a little bonus. It's not here. It's probably later, but I want to put it in there. Capital losses is when you lose money. So remember, there's cost basis and proceeds. Cost basis is what you paid. Proceeds are what you sold it for. If the proceeds are higher, it's a gain. If the proceeds are lower, it's a loss. If you have a loss, then you don't pay taxes on it. And you can actually use some of that against your income. So if you lose money trading capital losses, you can use all of that against any capital gains. But if you lose more than you make, so if you make five grand trading and you lose 10 grand at the same time, you have a net loss of five grand. Three grand of that every year can be used against your ordinary income, your salary, and then the rest gets carried forward. So now, so in that case, you have five five grand in losses. Three grand reduces your income. So remember, we make it 100 grand. Now we're technically making 97, so we make less. So we make taxes on less. And then I have two grand to carry over to 2021 And I can use all of that against capital gains, or again, up to three grand, since it's only two, I can use two grand to reduce my income the following year. Okay, when you file filing your tax return, I highly doubt this is on the test, but let's do it. So if you're a single, you're single, you're going to be a higher rate. If you maintain a household dependence, you can do head of household. That means you're single, you're not married, but you have kids, okay, head of household. Or married, what happens is, so if you're married, filing jointly, you should have a lower tax bracket, Yes, there's a whole thing if you follow jointly and you're both working, there's issues, but we're going to leave that alone. So you're single, head of household, or married, filing jointly. Okay, sometimes you're going to want to set up a balance sheet. Basically, you're trying to figure out where they are, their net worth. So basically, 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 net worth is your assets minus your liabilities, how much you have versus how much you owe. That's really everyone's net worth. That's like everything. All you have minus what you owe, and the difference is your net worth. What things are assets, your house, your car, any kind of furniture, jewelry, bonds, stocks, mutual funds, pension plans, savings account, cash, all that stuff are considered assets and then liabilities that, okay, before we do that, there's tangible, which are things you can touch, like real estate, houses, cars. Those are things you can, investments are like stocks, bonds, retirement plans are intangible. And then we have a savings account, money market funds, checking and savings, Okay. Liabilities are like the bills you owe, the mortgage, credit card loans, auto loans, student loans, debit balance on your margin. Those are all considered um, liabilities. So it's all your assets minus your liabilities to get your net worth. Liquid net worth is a little different. Liquid net worth is how much of the assets that are easily, easily convertible into cash readily turned into. So when they say your liquid net worth, they mean no house, okay? So if you have a $20 million house and a no mortgage, their idea is that that's not considered liquid net worth. It is part of your net worth, but it's not part of your liquid net worth. So whenever they come up with, oh, your liquid net worth, you have a million dollars in liquid net worth to be an accredited, they don't mean that. They don't mean to take the house out. So let's talk about some things that are non-financial. So how old they are, the younger they are, the more risk they can take, the longer time horizon, because time horizon is everything. So if they're older, the older they get, the more conservative they should be. doesn't mean they will be. It just is. Now, when I do, so the way I everyone does that 100 minus to figure out what they should do in equities, I do this. You do their age in bonds. It's just a ballpark, right? If they're 30, 30% bonds. If they're 80, 80% bonds. Again, it's all a ballpark, right? So if someone's 40, they should be around 40, 35, 40% bonds, the rest in equity and stuff. But if they're conservative, you jack that percentage up. And if they're risk, if they're, you know, risk takers, not risk averse, risk averse, you jack it up because they don't want risk. If they're willing to take more risk, maybe you lower the percentage. Like I'm mostly equities. I don't don't think I would have any bonds yet. Um, Again, time horizon is everything. Time horizon is how long, how long you have. So if you have a long time, you can take more risk. You can do more things. So like, if it's if they have a 20 15, 20 30 year time horizon equities works under five years equities is never the answer under five years you will never do equities in the real world that's not so true but on finRA anything under five years you do you do don't do equities and if they're under a year no matter what they say if they say they need their money in a year or six months or 18 months you are doing money markets every single time you're not doing equity and remember if you make a re- if they say I need my money in 18 months, you don't buy a two-year bond or two-year anything. You never go beyond their time horizon because there's risk there. So if they near the money in 18 months, if you buy something for 16 or 17 or 18, that's fine. But 19, 20 and on is not okay. Never buy a product that is longer than their time horizon. We want to know what kind of investment experience they have. Do they know their shit? If you talk to them, will they understand what an option is or a bond is? So investment experience called sophistication is very important. You want to make sure that they can comprehend the risks and understand it. That happens a lot where people would, people are afraid to say what they want, what, what they don't know. So then the rep thinks they know stuff and then they make recommendations that they shouldn't. So you have to do that. What kind of risk tolerance they have? Are they willing to take risk? Again, normally the younger they are and the more money they have, the more likely they are to take risk. But it is not a rule. You can have a 30-year-old who's very risk-averse, who doesn't do anything but treasuries. That is totally fine, and that is part of it. You have to take that into account. If they're risk-averse, if you see the word risk-averse, protection of principle, safety of principle, preservation of capital, you're really going very safe, and it's mostly going to be treasuries. You want to know social values. Are they liberal or are they conservative? They're very liberal. Maybe you don't want to put them in a, like some defense contractor. And if they're very conservative, maybe you don't put them in a stem cell. If they are if they have religious things, you don't want to do stuff that's going to violate their religious beliefs or social beliefs. You want to take that into account. Some people like green investing, focus on that. If they don't care about that, these want to money, then you're pretty open. But you do have to take that because people should not invest in stuff they don't feel comfortable with because then they're not it's not right for them and it's not suitable. So you always have to take in their social values also. So some of financial goals and investment objectives are like capital reserve. Look, everyone, the theory is everyone should have some sort of cash reserve. They're supposed to have at least three or six months worth of cash so that if you lose your job, you can cover your living expenses for that. year. Nobody really does that, but that's what cash capital reserve is. Preservation of capital is I don't lose my money. I'm not looking, I'm not willing to risk my risk, my principal. So do treasuries or do something very safe. Basically you're going to do insurance CDs, money market funds or government securities. They're they're willing to give up return for safety, okay? So remember, everything's about managing risk and reward. So they're willing to give up some return because they will. They will actually lose money over time, but they don't want to lose their principal. Maybe they need their money in six months or a year, or they're 95 years old. They don't care about long-term goals. They just want to keep their money. Liquidity is the ability to get your money. So it's all about a short, so you can get it very quickly. So it's going to be like money market funds, T-bills, any kind of money markets, would be liquid, high quality stuff. The more the more safe something is, the higher quality something is, the more liquid it is. The less quality, the less safe it is, the less liquid it is. So like small caps would have some liquidity risks. Those are risky. You know, things in other countries would be risky. Hedge funds, all those things would have liquidity issues. Limited partnerships would be a problem liquidity wise. Okay, maybe we want a current income. Remember, if they want current income, they want to be paid, maybe be paid. So it's like buying corporate bonds, buying muni bonds if, they say, if they're if they rich and they want income, or treasuries if they want safety and income, but not T-bills, they want things that pay. Regular corporate bonds, GEOs and revenues, T-bonds and T-notes and maybe tips if they're thinking about inflation, CDs, some CDs, mortgage-backed securities pay monthly income, preferred stock, value stocks that pay like a, um, a consistent dividend, utilities, current income is getting money in your pocket on a consistent basis. But again- Usually growth is being sat, uh, sacrificed for that. Growth, we're looking for capital appreciation. We're looking for stocks and convertible bonds and stuff like that, or annuities, variable annuities, or um, that would be tax deferred growth. But mutual funds, anything to do with stocks, stocks, not preferred common stock would be growth. You're looking for the, what you bought at 40 is now worth 50. It's usually not income, okay? Everything's usually either growth or income or safety, right? So income is getting paid. Growth is having it grow. So you're getting you taking on more risk to get more growth. Maybe you want to save for college. Okay. So college savings, we want a little bit of a mix between risk and reward, but it depends how old they are. If they have very little kids, we can take more risk. The older they get, the more bonds we do. Again, it's time horizon. And keep thinking of this, that you're, you're not paying for the first year of college, you're paying for all four. So if they're 18, it's not one year savings, it's one to four years. Okay, keep that in mind. Maybe you want to put money in a 529. Which is state run, Coverdell, which is has limits because it's federal run. UTMA, UTMA or UGMA, those are custodian accounts, right? That's where they have one custodian, one child, and you put the money in. Now, the five two nine and a Coverdell, the money grows tax for, deferred, and actually, if you use it for what it's for, grows tax free. Where the UGMA, and UTMA are taxable as they grow, but you know you can you can use it for what you want. You don't have to use it. Maybe they're saving for retirement. That's going to be where they put money in an IRA or a Roth IRA. Or a 401k or a KIO. that's where they're saving for retirement. They're looking for tax deferred growth so that when they take the money out, if it's a Roth, they don't pay any taxes. Maybe an available annuity is a choice. If it's a Roth, they won't pay taxes. But all these things you're putting money in and you either pay taxes on it or you don't when you put it in, but it grows tax deferred. It's growing tax deferred, which means you're not paying taxes as it grows. And then when you get older, when you take it out, if you have to pay taxes on it, it's going to be at a much lower rate because you're making less money speculation. So let's talk about speculation. Speculation is much riskier. You're looking for growth, but you're looking for above average returns. You're willing to take more risk for more rewards. And that may not always work out in your favor, but you are willing to take more risk. You're using margin, maybe options, hedge funds, small microcaps of smaller companies. If you buy calls or buy puts, you're looking for speculation, maybe without stock in it. Hedge funds are you know, a little riskier. Any kind of derivative futures and stuff like that, those are in the small cap stock, the smaller the company, or even maybe foreign companies, maybe emerging growth, all these non mainstream things are looking for more speculation, high risk, high reward. So maybe we're looking for some tax relief. Okay. Tax relief means we're looking for like growth that's not taxable. Now, in reality, if you see the word tax efficient, that's not the same, but tax efficient means you're not paying a lot of taxes on it. It's pretty good. So, like stocks are common stocks are. If they don't pay high dividends, you're only paying taxes at the end and hopefully at a capital gains rate, which is lower. But this is more like you can invest in IRAs or variable annuities, anything like tax deferred, maybe anything 401ks, IRAs, annuities, all that money goes tax deferred. So you're not paying taxes now when you have a high income. Okay, so fiduciary stuff is like: look, if you're managing it for a third party, like either a trust or an incapacitated adult or children, you have to make decisions that are best for the client always. And there's a prudent investor rule, and you have to make sure you follow fiduciary rules that you are always doing what's best for the client, not for you. Okay, regulation of your interaction with the customers. Look, I mean, it makes this is common sense shit. You can't lie to them. You can't exaggerate. You can't defraud or manipulate. You can't make promise unreasonable profits or commit or give unreasonable commissions and stuff like that. You can't. You have to do. You have to protect the investors and the public interest. Okay, you have to make sure that you're doing what you can to prevent fraud. That I means if that means cooperating with the governments and agencies to prevent fraud or any money laundering, that it works, you have to do the right thing, okay? So you have to make sure you have high standards of commercial honor, integrity, do the right thing. Don't make promises, don't lie, don't manipulate, stuff like that. This kind of makes sense. Okay, so know your customer and suitability, right? So KYC, know your customers. They get as much information on them as you want. Know their children, their adults everything, everything going on to the more, you know, the better you can to make recommendations. So it's all about being fair and doing the right. So remember, because if you do suitability, anything you recommend must be suitable to that customer specifically. It's not about profitability. It's about suitability. I know that sounds weird, but you have to do what's suitable for your customer. Okay. It's not always about making profits for either you or them. And by the way, there are things, like, remember, it's not always just do the most conservative, it's do what's right for them. If you have a 25-year-old internet billionaire, you don't have to do treasuries. Even if he goes, I'm a little conservative, you do it, but you can kind of talk to him about taking on more risk because he can handle it. You're not convincing him, but you're just explaining to him the risk and maybe he doesn't know. So just because something is risky doesn't mean it's unsuitable because some people can handle the risk and some people can't. So as far as suitability goes, this is going to be much more about this as we go on. Basically, with these products and stuff, but then in my suitability video. But you have to make your base your recommendations on the information they give you. So if they don't give you enough information, you can only base it on that a little bit. The more you get, the better you can do. This is really about what they call non-institutional or retail. Institutional, so like, you know, if you have a hedge fund or a broker dealer, that's your client. Your suitability they can sign a letter saying listen we can make our own decisions and we don't you just throw give us any idea and we don't care that's institutions can do it retail cannot retail you have to always have some sort of suitability basis on what you recommend it's going to be based on their age or what other investments they have with their situation and their tax status what are their objectives and experience right what's their time horizon do they need the money right now liquidity what risk talents they have, and any other information you can get from the customer is what you use to determine suitability. Especially on these exams, they're going to give you normally two things. They're old and they want this, or they're young and they want this, or they want this and they want this. There's always going to be two things they give you pretty much as far as suitability goes to determine what they want. Because if they just say they want income, there's a whole list of things. But then you say, oh, they're on Social Security, which means they're low income. Unis are not a choice. Or they inherited twenty million dollars in their one income. Okay, so taxes are a thing. Or they're worried about inflation. Boom, you got that would be a tips maybe. So you have to look at everything. You're looking at all their. You're going to. Edu- their prior experience and investment experience matter, but their education doesn't. Remember that. There's always going to be a question. We don't care about their education. We don't. I mean, yeah, you can ask to find out, but it's not really a major factor. It's more about their experience. Their investment experience and what they've done, and their risk tolerance and time horizon. You cannot put your needs ahead of the customers. You cannot say, "Oh, I'm going to recommend this because it pays me a higher commission." You can't. You can't do breakpoint sales, which is going to say, "Oh, go in this fund and this fund to keep you below the breakpoints, because then I get a bigger commission." You can't do something to for your own methods, right? So, like, say your company is pushing a new IPO, you can't push that just to keep your job, stuff like that. You have to use the customer suitability, okay? You can't use, you can't say, oh, use margin to increase your commission. Kind of all makes sense, right? You're not doing it to put more money in your pocket. If you can't afford that payment on your Ferrari, you shouldn't have gotten it in the first place. Now, as far as suitability goes, there's three main obligations. There's reasonable basis, customer specific, and quantitative. So this is pretty simple, but it sounds in the beginning bit. Reasonable means that if you make a recommendation of some sort of investment, it must be suitable to someone in general. So if you're going to look at something to invest for someone, you have to make sure that it's reasonable to someone, maybe not your specific customer, but that someone would be, it would be reasonably suitable for someone. And if you don't understand the product, you can't recommend it. The next one is customer specific. It has to be specific to the customer that you're talking about. Boom. Third is quantitative. Quantitative is it has to match the rest of their portfolio. Like if they're rich and they want a lot of money and they want income, you're thinking, oh, I'm going to do munis. But then you look in their portfolio and you see they're 80% munis already. Don't do that. You have to make it fit in their portfolio as a whole. We already talked about institutional suitability as far as institutions go. So with institutions, As long as they attest that they can make their own decisions and they're sophisticated enough, it lowers the bar where you don't have to worry about the the customer specific obligation. You just have to make recommendations to them that are fair, that would make like not to make money but would be suitable for someone. And then they can make their own decisions. You do have to verify that they're doing, that they are what they say they are, but they can actually attest out of it. They can say, listen, listen, we are sophisticated. We make our own decisions, please. We want you all the information. Any kind of thing that you think can make money or be good for us, let us know and we'll make our own decisions. But again, retail can't do that. It only has to be an institution. There are some things that you invest in that only certain type of people become come by. Like a 144A is for quibs or like a Reg D, only like sophisticated and accredited investors can buy. So what happens is they can attest that there are, but you're supposed to verify, whether it's W-2s or K-1s or tax returns or, or income statements, whatever it is, you're supposed to verify that they are accredited. You know, they can say they are, and you if they say they are and they attest it, you can make, you know, you can talk to them. But before you complete the deal, you have to make sure that, that you have to verify that they are either credited or sophisticated. Okay, thanks a lot for listening in. I hope that helped a little bit. If you want to see the video version of this, please go check out Capital Advantage Tutoring on YouTube. I also have a TikTok under Blue Collar Finance, also Instagram, under series seven whisper, I can never remember who it is. I'm um, gonna hopefully have somewhere out there. Pay attention. We're gonna start doing some real good interviews soon. We have some p- good people lined up. Nobody's ever heard it, but great fucking stories. Stay tuned and follow me.